Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton is hurting after a heartbreaking loss in the Grey Cup. We chat with a musician that rocked the Grey Cup halftime show. A CHML legend is inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. McMaster University is setting up a community fridge in the new year. Canada threatening new tariffs on the U.S. Have you ever had your vehicle stolen? And the geminid meteor shower lights up the sky. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I can sit here and tell you I'm happy you're here. I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes, wiping tears away that we lost. We were there. The city of Hamilton and what we did to get here is amazing. And I just, I can't believe we were that close. And, And we're walking away with nothing. It was oh so close, 33-25, the final Bombers over the Ticats in overtime to win the 108th Grey Cup in Hamilton. The droughts continues. Ticats last winning the championship of the Canadian Football League in 1999, and we'll have to wait at least one more year. Grey Cup 109 will be in Regina, the 110th Grey Cup in 2023, back at Tim Hortons Field, and uh, I'm sure it'll be bigger and better than this one. That's saying a lot because this one was pretty darn good. Uh, We're taking your calls, your emails, your tweets, discussing last night's game. How do you feel this morning? What's going through your mind? Is this one going to sit with you for a while? Got an email from Randy this morning. Good morning, Rick. A difficult Monday for many of us fans. The Cats lost this game simply because of poor coaching. The officiating did not help. It feels numbing and unbelievable. I felt I just had to say this instead of answering the poll question. It will be a long off-season. Have a good week, Randy from Oakville. That poll question is basically, how are you feeling after the Ticats lost the heartbreaking, in heartbreaking fashion in the Grey Cup last night? You can vote on our Twitter feed at AM900CHML. Judy has called into the program. Hello, Judy. Good morning. How are you? Yes, good morning. First off, I want to tell you I really enjoy your show. Oh, thank you very much. Now, second off, can you explain to me why Winnipeg got the ball? Like, I, I'm just a, a newbie as far as following football. In overtime, you mean? Yes. So they had a coin flip, and uh, Winnipeg, um, actually, the Ticats won the coin flip, and yes. they said, okay, we'll have Winnipeg have the ball first. And the way it works in overtime is you start on the 35-yard line, and you try and score uh, either a touchdown. If you don't get a touchdown, you score a field goal. And then the other team, in this case, the Tiger Cats, have their chance to even the score or try to beat the other team. So... Uh, Winnipeg scored a touchdown. They had to go for two points. That's the rule. They got the two points. So Hamilton had to score a touchdown, then had to score a two-point conversion to tie the game to continue the overtime period. Does that make sense? Okay. But why would they give the ball? Like, in my estimation, if you've got the ball, you've got a better chance of... Yeah, well, there's the strategy, right? You are in overtime. If you go on offense first and you're stopped or you're limited to a field goal, then the other team can win with a touchdown. So there are some pros and cons to both approaches. I would have liked to see the Ticats go first and be the aggressor, but obviously that wasn't the case. I'm sitting there, and like I'm an 80-year-old widow sitting there, and I'm going, (laughs) Why are you giving them the ball? <laughs> you know, if you've got the ball, you've got a chance. Right. But anyhow, I was disappointed, but yes, it was an excellent game. It certainly was. Judy, thanks for the call. Thank Enjoy you. your day. Right. Bye-bye.
I got an email from Danielle. As I listened to the fifth quarter last night, I thought a shout-out needs to go to Rick Zamprin. Well, I did not pay Danielle to write this. Uh, for being up to do that show and doubling back in the morning to be in his normal, upbeat self. Thanks. Oh, yes, the game. It was a real nail-biter. Disappointed, of course. But let's look ahead. Go Cats. That email from Danielle. Great email. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it does hurt this morning. It's uh, a very different feeling this morning, even compared to the morning after the 2019 championship, because let's face it, that game was pretty much over by halftime in 2019. Last night, you know, the Ticats at one point led 22 to 10 early in the fourth quarter and could not seal the deal. How are you feeling this morning, Ticats fans and Hamilton residents? 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell phone. Uh, send me an email, rick at 900chml.com uh, or on Twitter at am900chml at Rick Zamprin. Richard writes on Twitter, good morning, Rick. I feel hollow, but the sun came up this morning. I still love my Ticats and I love the Grey Cup party this city put on. Absolutely. Thumbs up to the city of Hamilton and the Tiger Cats for putting on a fantastic show not only last night but all week long it was fantastic aaron writes really heartbroken this morning we put on a great show for the cfl this weekend with great cup 108 but all of the tie cats fans have to wait again to celebrate a win uh in the biggest game of the year season ticket holder since 2003 ugh that uh, text or that uh, tweet part of me from aaron how are you doing this morning? 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. You can email rick at 900chml.com, on Twitter at am900chml, at Rick Samprin. There was a lot of fans, obviously, streaming out of Tim Hortons Field last night who were heartbroken, distraught, disheveled, emotional. Obviously, CHML's Dying Weeks caught up with a bunch of them after last night's loss. Oh, disappointed, of course, but it was a good game. They rallied. And it was nice to see Mazzoli out there playing. So, but yeah, next year. I'm so sad that they gave up the one-point conversion and then they lost. A really good football game. It was a little cold, but the better team won. That's what it comes down to. We're so happy that the Bombers won. We came from Winnipeg to watch and we won and we're, we're super happy. Disappointed. Very disappointed. Could have been better. It was a good game, though. Overall, good game. The amount of fan support that was in that stadium should have carried them through in that overtime. And it was close, and uh, it's not over. Two more years, we'll be back. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I drove a long way from B.C. to come here. Long-time Ticat fan, and uh, heartbreaking to see, but at least it was a good football game. They totally should have won. Seriously, they had it. It, it was going to be ours. You know what? It was a great game. It's our national championship. It went down to overtime. I don't like when the refs make the decisions. It was an awesome game. Congratulations, Winnipeg. Oh, uh, we lost, but it was still a good game. It was a tough loss, but, uh, you know, we did everything we could. I can sit here and tell you that I'm happy you're here. I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes, wiping tears away that we lost. We were there. The city of Hamilton and what we did to get here is amazing. And I just I can't believe we were that close. And, and we're walking away with nothing. And that pretty much sums it up. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tough loss last night, obviously, for the Ticats at the Grey Cup. But what many people are talking about besides the game is the wonderful halftime show 
with Hamilton's Arkells, the Lumineers, and our next guest, musician Kay Flay. Kay Flay, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today after a wonderful concert last night during the halftime show. How did it go last night? Uh, it went amazing. I, you know, I was I was saying uh, last night after we got back to the hotel. I think I like blacked out from adrenaline. <laughs> <laughs> I came I came off stage and I was like, did I sing? Did that? Did I sing the chorus? Did I forget to do that? Um, so that's when you know. I feel like there are these moments that you're you're so inside of a moment you kind of dissociate um, in, in a really great way. So it was it was super fun and just just an honor to be up there. And well, you you and Arkells and the Lumineers just smashed it out of the park last night. It was a wonderful show by all accounts. Uh, now that you've had time to reflect and think about your blackout, what do you remember <laughs> most about the show? What what are some of the highlights for you? I mean, I think you know one of my favorite things just in terms of being a musician in general is collaboration and I've, I've known Max and, and all the Arkells for four or five years now and just getting a chance to actually be on stage. This was our first time performing. You can get it live, which is like quite a way to, to, to set it off. Um, so just being able to, you know, going from the studio and having that energy of collaboration and then going up on stage and being actually able to interact with Max and, and, and feed off of one another. Uh, I think I think that's kind of the the thing that stands out the most to me. And then I got to join them and play guitar and sing backups at, uh, on Knocking at the Door, which I always love when I get to be like in the band for someone else. So that was, <laughs> I love doing that. Um, talk about the outdoor stadium factor. It brings a certain level of electricity, I think. A hundred percent. I think, you know, being in in these large performance environments, especially, I mean, there's so much electricity at a sports game, like no matter what, just because of like, everyone's just buzzing. You know, people are rooting for different teams. There's like, there's so much on the line. So I think as a performer, you really feel that energy and and feed off of it and and kind of sense that excitement. So I think I, think I internalize the excitement of the masses, blacked out, <laughs> um, but still, still, was also present, if that makes sense. Oh, that, that's pretty cool. We're chatting with musician Kay Flay, who joined Arkells and the Lumineers for last night's Grey Cup halftime show. You're from Illinois. Max and the band is from Hamilton. How did you guys connect? So we met through their manager, actually, who works with Lights, uh, a Canadian legend and a good friend of mine who I had toured with. Uh, she had brought me out on tour in Europe uh, years ago. And then I was, I had a song called Blood in the Cut that did uh, well here in Canada and other places. And that was sort of the link uh, between me and Max. And then he reached out and I, I appeared on his podcast. But a really fun fact is that when, I'm, when I met up with him for the very first time, I, I came to the studio when they were recording Knocking at the Door. And I remember I went into the control room. Max was like, "Let me, we're we're working on this song. Let me play it for you." And I came in. I was like, "This song, this song rips. This is a great song." Uh, and then, of course, it it did very well and became this this amazing thing. Yeah, and you had to collab with them, and it's uh, been a great uh, marriage on uh, the the things that you've worked on. What's next for you? What's what's on the horizon? So uh, next year is a lot of touring. I just put out two EPs this year, Inside Voices and Outside Voices, uh, which constitute a, a record. 
and uh, I'm touring on that record next year. We're going to be uh, in Toronto at the Danforth uh, in February, I believe. But yeah, February, March, April, May, I'm out on the road. So come find me. Come hang. We'll check you out. Kay Flay, thanks for the time. Awesome job last night. And uh, we will certainly check out your uh, new uh, songs uh, down the road. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. That is Kay Flay. Wonderful job last night with our Kells and the Lumineers at the Great Cup Halftime Show. It was a spectacular show. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There was a lot of excitement away from Tim Hortons Field as well. That's because the media wing of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame officially welcomed two new inductees yesterday and had the pleasure of attending the induction ceremony, which was actually surprisingly Quite emotional at times. The Football Reporters of Canada enshrined longtime CFL on CTV commentator Bernie Pascal, as well as former CHML newsman and Tiger Cats play-by-play announcer Bob Hooper. I had a chance to chat with Bob's widow, Carmela Ciotti Hooper, yesterday and asked her what hoop would have made of all the hoopla. (laughs) Uh, He he might chuckle. (laughs) I think he would chuckle because truly, honestly, he was very humble, as you know and uh, never wanted to be in the spotlight. Uh, but he would be very, he'd be very proud, very proud. And uh, because these are all his colleagues, you know, and they all, you know, he was a love of his, of his craft. And so being honored by these people, it meant everything to him. I didn't get to work with him for too long, but I do remember when he was the communications manager with the Tiger Cats. And I remember leaving a voicemail on his on his voicemail machine, and it was just Bob Hooper, Tiger Cats Communications. And then the beep came. He was a very practical guy. Oh, yes. Very practical for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he had his funny side. Yeah. Uh, I, I, just a, a, a very funny thing. He had many voices that um, not many people, he wouldn't, he wouldn't let other people hear. But in the days when you used to have uh, uh, answering machines, he put uh, different voices on there. Really? And I said, one of these days I'm going to copy them. And he said, over my dead body. <laughs> but no, he, when it came to his craft, he was very serious. Uh, but he, he had a funny, funny side and with family and uh, he had a love of family, obviously. And so, um, yeah, today is a special day, special for all of us. What would he say was his career highlight? 1998. Yeah. I think that um, that was probably when it came to football, that one, the, uh, the kick. And uh, to this day, when I hear it, uh, even on YouTube, you know, it, it just gives me chills. Uh, but uh, consummate professional always. And I think that was his highlight. You shared a, another story about uh, you helping out with some stats oh, one day. Oh, 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 <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I don't even think the, the family knew about that one, but I'll never forget that one. I was a nervous wreck. Yeah. I thought, what if I screw this up? Excuse me. <laughs> and uh, he said no. And he looked at me at the end of all that and he said, you did a perfect job, dear. And I said, okay, uh, you know, not me. <laughs> did you get most of it right? Uh, as far as I know, I think. <laughs> you know, I don't even know what the game was, but let me tell you, at the end, my nerves were shot. Mm-hmm. But uh, then you get a perspective of how he did his job and how, how stats are so important. And all, like, yeah, so it, it was interesting. One of the big things about play-by-play announcing is not just on game day and what happens during the game, but it's a lot of the prep work that goes into it. 
Talk about all the homework that he would do. Oh, massive, massive. I'd find him at the kitchen table with his binders out, (laughs) and he would be reading all about uh, the different stats and everything. And and, uh, if he didn't have time to do that, he'd be in a... Uh, a tither oh a tither like no I I gotta I do this now but now I gotta prep for the game or even for the um, for the committee because he knew that uh, he wanted to know everything about all the uh, inductees possible inductees Mm -hmm. so he would do super super research like there was no tomorrow yeah what do you think the Canadian Football League meant to him Oh wow, that's a that's a biggie. Um, it, it's an institution. It was an institution. He took it very seriously. Um, he preferred CFL far more than the NFL. He said the game uh, at the CFL level was so more powerful and interesting than the NFL. And he said. I always remember this. He always told me, you watch a game in the CFL, it's right down to the last second. He said, it's not the same. And he said, and that's the excitement of the game, and that's the excitement of the CFL. Well, congratulations to you and the Hooper family. It's a tremendous honor and a well-deserved and long overdue one. Thank you very much. Thank you again to Carmela Ciotti Hooper, Bob's wife, and his induction into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. I'll read part of his plaque, which really gives uh, a lengthy history of Bob's achievements. But uh, it says, in part, in 1984, he started his first stint as the Tiger Cats play-by-play announcer, and after taking a five-year hiatus, resumed that role in 1997 until his retirement from CHML in 2001. He was the voice of two Grey Cup-winning squads in 1986 and 99, who were Hamilton's last champions before his induction. Hooper became known for his on-air grace and thorough pregame preparations, whose passion for the Tiger Cats and the community shone throughout his career and retirements and well set. And uh, Hoop and uh, Bernie Pascal go into the Hall of Fame. Of course, we know uh, a great bunch of players and builders going in this year as well. Uh, Will Johnson, Mike Walker, Nick Lewis, Orlando Steinauer, Don Wilson, and uh, a couple of builders, uh, Alouette's head coach, Marv Levy, and uh, the sixth commissioner of the CFL, Doug Mitchell, also inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. If you haven't visited the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, I encourage you to do so. A lot of great history and artifacts for you to check out. Located now at Tim Hortons Field, going to gate uh, three, and there are a couple of busts just to uh, kind of whet the appetite and uh, a great exhibit uh, in the stadium as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Cool story out of McMaster University. To combat food insecurity on campus, a community fridge is set to open. Uh, Zainab Chawaja is a health promoter, McMaster University Student Wellness Center, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Zainab, good morning. Uh, Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well. So we have early for me, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> we have a community fridge set to open at McMaster uh, University. Uh, tell us about it. Yes. So um, it uh, was really inspired by the community fridges that have cropped up throughout Hamilton over the pandemic. I think March was when the first one opened. Um, there's three in the community now, and we were really excited to bring this to campus um, to meet food security needs of McMaster students, but also. Uh, really anyone in the uh, nearby surrounding area. It's been a joint initiative, um, really student-led. Um, students are at the center of the project. 
through the Student Union Food Collective Center, the Student Union Run Food Bank, um, as well as students who are working on this project through a course at McMaster in the Academic Sustainability Program. And a bunch of different McMaster departments have come together really to champion and support this project to bring it to McMaster. Well, so you're really filling a lot of buckets there in terms of identifying a community need, uh, learning about this process. It, it seems mm-hmm. to be uh, beneficial for, for all parties involved. Yeah, it, it definitely is. So we're really excited to see this happen at McMaster. Is there a big need? What's the food insecurity like on campus? Um, so, I mean, it's hard to have exact data, but um, every every year every there's hundreds of students who um you know it ranges from not wanting to buy a meal on campus because they're super expensive um so they kind of just go the whole day without really eating anything nutritious for their minds and their bodies um to um students who are struggling to buy groceries on their regular um students who are working multiple jobs to um pay for rent and tuition and really struggling financially um so there's a broad, broad spectrum of students who, you know, might be facing food security issues or food insecurity. Um, And then also in just like the broader Hamilton area, there aren't really any other uh, community fridges in that part of town. Um, They're really hoping to meet a lot of different needs. You know, sometimes there's this assumption that university students, McMaster students are all really, you know, privileged and well off. And obviously there's a, there's a significant subset where, where that's true, where, you know, they're fortunate to have, um, not a lot of student debt or families that can support them financially that are able to do that. Um, but that's not the case for a lot of students, and there really is a lot of need. Hundreds of students, um, according to the last Canadian, camp- Canadian Campus Wellbeing Survey, who don't have sufficient food or foods that meet their um, cultural preferences and things like that. So we're really trying to make this something that um, can help a lot of students and community members. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is McMaster University Student Wellness Center health promoter Zainab Chawaja. Um, we're talking about food insecurity on campus at McMaster University and a new community fridge opening up there. I- is it already open or is this in the process of? It's in the process of. So we okay. have a lot of pieces that have been put together and we're hoping for a late January launch. Um, we have a lot of, um, we have a, a fund set up uh, online for folks to make monetary donations towards, um, you know, keeping the fridge going for its first couple of weeks and months before we get more community donations of food. Um, we have a shed that's being built to kind of protect the fridge, freezer, and pantry. Um, we're putting out a call for designs for students to contribute designs and paint the shed before it launches. Um, we have a call for volunteers that's going up soon. So. Um, we have all these pieces kind of coming together in place for a late January launch. And, th- and this could be accessed by residents who are around McMaster University, correct? Yeah. This is not just Absolutely. for students. Absolutely. Anyone anyone is able to come by and grab some food from the fridge and pantry. Um, we won't be, like, monitoring it. You won't require a student ID. Staff and faculty could grab something from there if they so wish, community members. But absolutely anyone can grab some food or donate some food from the fridge. Where is the food coming from? Um, so it will be a combination. Um, as with any community fridge, the spirit is community-based donation. So we're really hoping that, you know, people within the campus community, staff, faculty, um, neighbors, as well as local restaurants and grocery stores will contribute to the food. Um, but we also have that Mac page set up the, um, where people are making monetary contributions. So community members are also donating money if they're not able to bring stuff to the fridge in the future. Um, and so we will also be using that money to source um, 
groceries and some staples to make sure that they're always available at the fridge. And this obviously, you know, if it is benefiting more than just students, it's going to be operating 365 days a year, basically. Yes. Um, short of something like a snow day where, <laughs> you know, we might not be able to keep an eye on it, um, it absolutely will be open every day of the year. Wow, this is amazing. Zainab Chawaja is a health promoter, McMaster University at Student Wellness Center. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're chatting about a community fridge that is set to open in the new year at Mac. Um, Can people make donations? And if so, how can they go about doing that? Yes, absolutely. Um, You're able to make a a monetary contribution online now. And then once the fridge is open, we obviously would love uh, food or pantry uh, item donations. if you follow us at uh, on Instagram at McMaster Community Fridge, you can kind of see um, some of the links are up on our link tree where you can make a monetary donation. There's some posts that might be going up later as well around that. Um, so if folks are interested, definitely check us out on Instagram at McMaster Community Fridge. It's um, a pretty straightforward handle, so hopefully people won't have trouble finding that. <laughs> Um, and there's some more information there on uh, making monetary donations at this time. Would you say food insecurity is a hot topic or, or a notable topic on campus? Um, I would definitely say that. Um, and it's on campuses kind of everywhere across Canada. We um, hear people talking about food insecurity and, you know, there's a lot of different projects going along, a lot of different initiatives across campus. And Um, We haven't really seen the community fridge, at least uh, as far as I'm aware, on a campus so far. But um, food insecurity is definitely something we're often talking about and trying to tackle in a lot of different ways through student-led initiatives, through collaborative initiatives. Um, And so this is just a newer way that we're trying to do it um, and trying to destigmatize food insecurity a little bit because the fridge is going to be in a pretty um, visible location. Um, We're really trying to make it seem like it's not like anyone's fault it's not a bad thing to um need support with food to have to face some level of food insecurity or anything like that so um yeah it, it is something that we we do talk about often at university at the university Zena, appreciate the time today best of luck with this community fridge and we'll chat with you in the new year to see how it's going all right, wonderful. Thanks so much. Have a great, Have a great day. day. Zainab Chawanja, health promoter, McMaster University Student Wellness Center, a new community fridge opening up at Mac in the new year. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A proposed electric vehicle tax credit plan in the U.S. of A. has led Canada to threaten new tariffs on our biggest trading partner. Here to explain the ins and outs is Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be with you, Rick. Now, this has been brewing for a while now. What's happening? What's new here? Well, let me just take you back a little bit in time, and then we can talk about going forward. So uh, President Biden, Joe Biden, has put forward a series of bills, each one designed to help, as he likes to say it, build back better. And uh, these are what he calls infrastructure bills. So there's one under debate right now uh, in the U.S. House and in the U.S. Senate. Uh, lots of different infrastructure projects, but there's one paragraph that got our attention, and it was that he wants to propose that Americans can get $12,500, or at least up to $12,500 credit from the government if they buy an electric vehicle. And that's going to help America meet its uh, uh, carbon emission targets. And you think, wow, that's great uh, uh, program. But if you read the fine print a little bit more, he says the $12,500 would only be 
for automobiles assembled in the United States. And Canada says, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. We have, a, we have an integrated uh, car industry. Uh, parts move back and forth across the border. Uh, well, when you say American, you mean Canada, too, don't you? And, of course, when asked for that clarification, Mr. Biden said, no, 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 only American-made cars. Well, of course, he wants to stimulate electric vehicle manufacture in the United States. Last year, we had big deals from all the major automobile makers, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, who said they wanted to build plants to assemble electric vehicles here in Canada. And all of a sudden now, that might be under discussion. And, of course, those people might want to move those plants south of the border so that they can take advantage of this tax credit. So it was about three weeks ago, there was something called the Three Amigos Summit. The president of Mexico, the president of the United States, and the uh, prime minister of Canada got together. We said to Joe, hey, hey, Joe, you know, we're all friends here. You're just going to change that, right? Change that to North American as opposed to strictly American-made vehicles. And Mr. Biden said, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of talk on this bill. It might not get passed at all. Let's just see where it goes. Well, it's been moving forward, and it's coming towards a key vote in the Senate in the next week or so. And so on Friday, our uh, finance minister and our minister of trade sent a letter, uh, not just to the president, but copied to all of the major players, the, the heads of the Senate, the uh, minority leader in the Senate, in the House, etc., saying, look, if you pass this thing as it is, and basically put Canadian-made electric vehicles at a disadvantage, we're going to put tariffs on American vehicle products uh, at the same level. Now, we've figured out that we think this $12,500 is a 33% tariff, in essence, on uh, Canadian-made electric vehicles. So we're going to do something on the same order, 33 to 35% on American things. We've never done this before. We also said we'll take you to court there's a, or I'll call it court, uh, there's a dispute resolution process within the new NAFTA. So while we're waiting for them to come to a conclusion, we're going to put these tariffs on just to keep the playing field equal. This is quite serious saber-rattling on the part of Canada. That is a great breakdown from Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Um, now, for this tax credit that's going to go to Americans who buy vehicles made and built on U.S. soil... Is 100% of the vehicle built in America? I mean, there's an argument against that, isn't there? <laughs> well, yes. So, you know, a great example is uh, as a car is manufactured in North America, parts of it move back and forth across the border between Canada and the United States, we think, up to 14 times. So, for instance, you're assembling something in the engine. I start with a component here, then I send it over there. They do something, then they send it back here, and we move it back and forth. And we've done that without any worry because, you know, we're all friends. It's all part of the what used to be called the auto pack between Canada and the United States. It, it just doesn't matter because we're all treated the same. So it isn't clear at all in Joe Biden's um, bill if i had a car that was all right the the primary assembly happened in the united states but say uh, the battery parts and the uh, engine parts they were done here in canada does that still qualify and and of course the, the 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 bill is very very silent on that we just want to make sure we get our fair chunk if this is the future and we think it is by 2030 almost all cars being assembled are going to be electric vehicles we want to make sure we get our chunk of it we saw Doug Ford say he wanted to position Ontario, I think it was to make 
400,000 of the electric vehicles a year in Ontario. And and so, you know, we need clarification, and the bill is very short on that. Uh, this was a hot topic at the Three Amigos Summit, as you mentioned. Premier Doug Ford recently saying that he's going to do whatever it takes to make sure this doesn't happen. How does uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and, and Premier Ford stick handle around this? Well, there is no uh, really good way to stick handle around it. You have to face it head on. And and I think what they did on Friday was to say to America, look, you know, we think you're going down the wrong road here. Just, you can add one word, make it North American rather than American, and everything's hunky-dory again. But if you don't do this, there are consequences. And I think you have to do that when you're dealing with a larger nation. There are lots of people listening to us, Rick, who feel the same way with China. That, you know, it's not a battle of equals. China is a big, big economy. It's the second largest economy in the world. But if Canada is doing business with China, we've got to be quite forceful making our case. And we have to do the same thing with the United States to say, you know, we're not sitting back. We're not taking this. This isn't correct. We love the idea of the of the $12,500 subsidy, but make it apply to North American vehicles and we'll be fine. And frankly, again, I think Mr. Biden, what he's worried about, he doesn't want the subsidy to go to Japanese-made vehicles or Korean-made vehicles or vehicles made in Germany. So I get that. But why are you excluding your biggest trading partner? This actually feels, I hate to say this out loud, this actually feels more like a Donald Trump thing than it does a Joe Biden thing. That certainly does. Marvin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for your time and enjoy your day today. Thank you. I will. Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University as we chat about the latest uh, tariff tussle, if you will, between Canada and the U.S. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Have you ever had your vehicle stolen? It's not a great feeling. My wife's vehicle was stolen a number of years ago. And, um, you know, you get that sinking feeling that, uh, you know, you've been invaded. And, uh, you know, her vehicle was parked in front of our house on uh, on the street. And we woke up one morning and um, it was gone. <laughs> it was gone. It was recovered in East Hamilton. A uh, screwdriver had been punched through uh, where you put the key normally. Uh, this was a, what was it? It was a uh, 98 or 2000 Dodge Neon. So, I mean, not a Ferrari by any means, <laughs> but easy to steal and uh, for Hamilton police, at least, uh, they found it uh, a few days later. It wasn't in the best of shape. Let's just say that. Well, Kevin Donovan, chief investigative reporter with the Toronto Star, recently had his vehicle stolen. A much nicer vehicle compared to a Dodge Neon. His Toyota Highlander SUV was snatched away. And Kevin joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Kevin, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Rick. Not only was your vehicle stolen, it was taken on a wild ride. Tell us what happened. Yeah, uh, end of September, a uh, car vanished from our driveway in Etobicoke. Uh, it uh, was gone as far as uh, as we were told by police and insurance, but uh, learned about a month later that it had been taken uh, by car thieves up the street to cool off uh, to see if it, I had any uh, a secret tracking device on it. I didn't. Uh, then it was put on a, a rail car in a, a container uh, uh a sea-bound type container uh, headed east, uh, found in the Halifax port, uh, about to head off to the Middle East. And uh, it, by this time, my insurance had already paid it out, and uh, and so the car had been declared a total loss. Uh, it's now, as I understand, being auctioned off, uh, and probably somebody else is driving it around now. Wow, that's pretty crazy. 
Uh, yeah, it was <laughs> uh, uh, it was interesting, but you know, as uh, a reporter often does, I use that to kick off uh, an interest in, in car thefts, and I've learned uh, that uh, I'm not uh, like like you. We're all in, in the same boat. Lots of cars are are, are missing, and, and more so than ever before in, in Canada and in all our cities. So, why are vehicles uh, being snatched left, right, and center these days? It appears. Well, I mean, it, car theft. Uh, they say police say that you know the first car was made, and the the next day the the first car was stolen, <laughs> that sort of thing. But but these days uh, there's a worldwide shortage, uh, as we all know, uh, because of the pandemic. In many things, in particular with cars, it's the computer chips that are in most cars made in the last fifteen or so years. Uh, the Highlander has apparently two thousand. That's not uh, a lot. Uh, the, the chips are are in uh, high demand right now and uh and because of that they can't make as many new cars as, as the auto companies would like to so people are are uh, uh looking for these cars in in the middle east uh in, in europe and africa and that's why they're being stolen so uh, it's in we should describe how your vehicle was stolen because it appears that you did everything right well it, now i i'm Looking at my driveway, I think I'm doing almost everything right. Mm. At the time, I, I'm not sure if I was. Uh, the car appears to be stolen by what's called a relay attack. Uh, modern cars have a key fob instead of a physical key. Uh, it's always emitting an electronic signal, electromagnetic signal. And it looks like the thieves uh, used a device to uh, uh, electronically reach inside the house and uh, grab that signal and amplify it to pop the door open. Once they're inside, they plug the uh, uh, a device that you can get in any mechanic shop. Uh, they plug it into uh, what's called the OBD port. It's a little uh, electronic port under kind of where if you think where your knee would, your left knee would be, just above there, uh, easily accessible, and that allows them to, after about twenty or thirty minutes, make a new key. Then they drive off. I've been sent tons of video in the last month from from people who had their vehicles stolen. There's lots of different ways cars are stolen. Ford 150 pickup trucks, which are quite commonly stolen. There's a, a, a different wrinkle how they're doing those. But what they're doing basically is reprogramming uh, the system to think that you are the driver and then they're gone. And uh, they also do some James Bond sort of stuff to to stop uh, the car from emitting a warning signal. Uh, and they also do something very simple. I, I learned recently uh, there's a way to reach uh, with a coat hanger inside the grill of the car and unhook your horn. And the horn is what sounds when the alarm goes off. So Jeez. it's just, it's crazy. It's, it's a wild west out there. Wow. Kevin Donovan, Chief Ex- Investigative Reporter at the Toronto Star, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're chatting about his uh, sensational car theft. And uh, so so what could you have done differently or could you have done anything differently? Well, what I'm doing now, uh, I, have, I have a couple of things. Uh, I, I bought the club, which is uh, old fashioned technology, mm-hmm. I guess. And I put that all, on all the time. It's at first a bit of a pain. Now it's just second nature to me. And you want to put that on so it's very uh, visible from the outside uh, of the car. Uh, I've also bought the uh, what's called a Faraday pouch. You can buy a Faraday box. It's basically a, a metal-lined a device that you put your key fob in all the time. And you have to put it in as soon as you get out of the car because sometimes the thieves are lurking in a parking lot uh, with the exactly the same in Hamilton as in Toronto, and they're going to try and grab your signal. So always keep them there overnight. 
if you have a garage, many people do not, but park it inside the garage. And the latest thing I'm doing, this may sound crazy, but, but I think it works, the VIN number, the vehicle identification number, which is on the front left of every uh, car dashboard, you can see it through the windshield. Uh, you should cover it up, and that's because the VIN is helpful in a thief trying to figure out what kind of uh, a key is needed for the car. And so I've seen videos of them coming up. The thief comes up at 1 a.m., snaps a picture of the VIN, leaves, comes back an hour and a half later, and drives the car away. I'm using an old CD. In my case, it's a Bruce Springsteen, big Springsteen fan. <laughs> uh, and it just it slides so neatly inside there between the windscreen and the dashboard. You could use something else, but this, you want something that's fairly thin and, uh, and, and stiff and smooth and won't cause any damage. And CD works perfectly. Uh, some people say, why don't I put tape on it? Well, you can't get tape in there. And don't put tape on the outside of your windshield because the thief will just pull it off. <laughs> yeah, it'll be scraped off in the winter anyways. Oh, and, and also I have the, what I call the Volvo gate. We have an older uh, uh, second vehicle, a Volvo great car, uh, and we parked that across the back <laughs> of the <laughs> Toyota. So but no, no one wants to steal a Volvo, apparently. Well, and that's interesting. <laughs> there, there are some, I mean, it's a good car, but there are some cars that I think are it's not that they don't want them. I think they're harder to steal, actually. Right. And and there's a there's a Toyota and Hondas, particularly the Honda CRV right now, uh, very uh, much in demand. Uh, so uh, I was driving around delivering. We have a, a charity at the Star. We deliver Christmas presents to the needy. And my goodness, I saw a lot of Honda CRVs out there, and I, I felt like going up to everyone saying, "Hey, come on." Get your CD out and tuck it in. Well, I have one of those myself, so I will be uh, putting a CD on my VIN number and doing some of the other suggestions that uh, you've uh, publicized here. Kevin, really a great report. Thanks for joining us this morning, and uh, we'll chat sometime down the road, I'm sure. Thanks for having me on, Rick. That's Kevin Donovan, Chief Investigative Reporter with the Toronto Star. Recently had his Toyota Highlander SUV stolen and obviously learned a lot in the process. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, it's the strongest meteor shower of the year, some say, and it will be at its flashiest, if you will, at least in this part of the world, tonight and into early tomorrow morning. Paul Delaney is a professor of astronomy at York University and joins us this morning on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Rick. This is the Geminid meteor shower. Tell us about it. Well, Celestial Fireworks is on tap for tonight after midnight, weather permitting. Uh, so as you say, the Gemini Meteor Shower is one of the best for the year. And so what we're talking about is a whole lot of rock impacting the Earth's atmosphere, speeding through our atmosphere at literally tens of kilometers a second and burning up, creating those shooting star effects. If we're lucky, by about 3 o'clock tomorrow morning, in a nice dark site, I know Hamilton's not particularly dark, but in a nice dark site, you could be up to 100 meteors per hour. So that's better than one to two a minute. So this is really a good site if the clouds clear and you can find a reasonably dark site. Why does this happen? Well, in this particular instance, it's not a comet that has broken up, which is generating this meteor shower. That's what the normal uh, progenitor of a meteor shower is, a comet. But in this case, it's actually an asteroid by the name of 3200 Phaethonon. And it's basically just shedding material. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a rock in space. It orbits the sun about every one and a half years. And it leaves behind a trail of debris. And that debris, the Earth passes through like clockwork every year, 
December 13th, 14th. And so that debris, as I said, moving at tens of kilometers a second, strikes our atmosphere and burns up. The vast majority of the material hitting the atmosphere burns up. And you and I end up seeing this terrific sight, all these shooting stars seemingly radiating out of the constellation of Gemini. It's not really coming from Gemini, but from our point of view on the ground, looking up at this stream, this rubble train of debris, it looks like it's coming from the constellation of Gemini. Now, I read that the Geminid meteor shower has produced more meteors over the past number of years compared to years gone by. Is that just because there's more debris being shed over the, the, the last number of years? The answer is probably. Uh, yeah, meteor showers are a little bit tough to predict. Uh, so again, just going back to the comets, when we pass through their debris trail, it tends to be thicker where the nucleus of the comet broke up, but material streams out behind it in its orbit. So material does redistribute, and of course the particles that are there will be a little gravitationally attracted to each other, and so they can clump in unexpected ways. We can't really track that that material. But in all likelihood, the amount of debris that is being thrown off by this asteroid is clumping in unexpected ways. And when we pass through those clumpier, those uh, richer areas of, of debris, then we end up with better displays. We're chatting about the Geminid meteor shower with Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy at York University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. How does this light show compare to the Perseids, which we see in the summer, right? Yeah, the Perseids is a good display. Many people uh, you know, claim that the Perseids is a better show, but I think it's because it's warmer. You know, you're outside <laughs> at uh, two o'clock in the morning and it's summer, you know, people are on holidays and, you know, there's more people up watching the Perseids, so it's a more comfortable experience. Obviously, here in the middle of December, it's a little chillier, but actually the amount of uh, meteors per hour is higher for the Geminids than the Perseids. Uh, the what we call the radiant, the point where most of the meteors appear to be coming from is much higher in the sky. It's really high, high there in the south southwest at sort of two, three o'clock in the morning. So it's in a really good position, but not as many people are watching it because it's cold and you're probably still doing Christmas shopping and you know, everybody's still in school. So it just isn't as popular a shower. But the Gemini is definitely one of the best, if not the best, as far as the meteor showers are concerned. You referenced this uh, earlier. It's not necessarily that these meteors are coming at us. We're kind of going through the meteor field, if you will. Does this have anything to do with gravitational pull within our solar system, or is it just the way that our planet is spinning around the sun? Now, in this particular instance, it's just uh, a happenstance of location. Right. The Earth's orbit is quite fixed. We move around the sun once a year, and we are in the same part of the sky or part, the same part of our orbit every single year. And a same statement goes for 3200 Phaethonon. That's the asteroid which is producing this debris. Where those two uh, orbits intersect, that happens on December 13th, 14th. So it's, it, you know, the, the material is coming into our atmosphere, uh, so gravity does play some sort of a role, but literally we're running through this debris trail, and that's what is generating all this material hitting our atmosphere. Great stuff, Paul. Really appreciate the time. As always, enjoy the light show. I will indeed. Everybody dress warmly for the occasion, though. <laughs> will do. Thanks, Paul.
It's actually not going to be, and thanks again to Paul Delaney from uh, York University, uh, a great astronomy professor. It's it's not going to be that cold. I mean, for we, we've had a pretty good stretch of weather, and it's actually even going to warm up later on this week. But tonight's forecast, it's going to be clear sky, so perfect viewing conditions tonight. Low minus 3 with the wind, it'll feel like minus 6 overnight. So, yeah, you definitely have to bundle up as well. Um, especially if you're going to be out for a considerable amount of time. But if you're out for 10, 20 minutes, uh, certainly a a warm coat and mittens and a scarf and a toque for sure, Uh, maybe some cozy cozy and comfy boots as well to keep the uh, toes warm, Uh, will go a long way to making it a much more enjoyable evening tonight. But it should be a lot of fun. My son wants to watch it tonight. Um, I'm sure we'll take a peek. Might be a little too late for me. But uh, maybe if he uh, stays up and takes a video for me, I'll uh, I'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.